Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The New Statesman. After a dramatic and chaotic campaigning period for the Rochdale by-election, the controversial politician, George Galloway, will be returning to Westminster yet again. He currently represents the Workers' Party of Britain, but this is the fourth city he's been elected to represent, and the third party in four decades. Hello, I'm Rachel Cunliffe, Associate Political Editor at The New Statesman, and joining me down the line I have Anoush Shekelian, New Statesman's Britain Editor, and Ben Walker, The New Statesman's Senior Data Journalist. Okay, so it's been a bit of a, a wild results day so far. To kick us off, Ben, can you talk us through the numbers? What has happened in Rochdale? What's happened in Rochdale is, uh, well, as maybe George Galloway should have called it straight away, the Rochdale Spring, a, a repeat of his sort of Bradford Spring surprise all the way from 2012 when he sh- when he then shocked uh, pollsters, forecasters and, and even the bookies who then in 2012 had him on 500 to 1 to win a by-election. Um, what we saw here in Rochdale, of course, very specific circumstances, a Labour candidate disavowed by the party, though still a Labour candidate on ballot paper, um, you know, collapsing to, what is it, fourth place, and George Galloway and an independent beating the two main parties, uh, the Conservatives and Labour, to, um, you know, score some pretty sizable wins. So Galloway, what happened was, first of all, in a by-election turnout falls, but it didn't fall by as much as in Kingswood, Wellingborough, a hell of a lot of Conlab fights, or even some Lib Dem and Tory fights either. It stood at an above average amount for a by-election. What that means is voters um, weren't as apathetic as perhaps we forecast. And what that meant is certain types of voters stayed out. Who are they? We don't really know. We could say it could be Britain's Asian community, Britain's Muslim voters who came out to punish Labour out of anger at Israel-Palestine, or was it something a bit more than that, something a bit more like whiter voters also deciding, well, I want to have my voice heard too, and who do they go for? Well, perhaps it was George Galloway, because what he got was 40% out of nowhere, an independent candidate who, to be honest, no one, I don't, I think I think very few people noticed uh, even, even his presence, with the exception of Rochdolians. Uh, he came away with 21%. The Conservatives collapsed to 12 and Labour fell to a, a fall for Labour of 44 points. That is a pretty sizable uh, collapse indeed. Yeah, and I think the the fact that Labour actually came fourth and an independent candidate came second to Galloway is is really quite striking, even to people who thought that Galloway had a chance of of winning the seat. 
Um, Anish, you were in Rochdale recently. You wrote a fantastic cover story for the New Statesman on what you found there, and you you followed Galloway around on the on the campaign trail. What what do you think he understood about voters there that the other candidates missed? Well, I think he he sort of read the mood of certain demographics in the town, most notably the British Asian community um, that Ben mentioned. Um, feelings about what's going on in Gaza are running really high among those voters, um, and that's something that I heard when I was going around speaking to people. It's you know a very visceral, very intense feeling of the injustice uh, in that part of the world, and Galloway was able to speak very passionately about it to those groups. Um, he was putting a lot of work into meeting up with Muslim community groups and talking about this stuff, you know, even in private. So it wasn't just rallies for show. Something that I went to was a sort of private women's lunch club where he was speaking to voters who you might not usually hear their voices as loudly on on political issues. But um, they discussed Gaza a great deal in that meeting, even though other issues obviously came up as well. Um, and also his campaign team told me that they were using WhatsApp a lot, lots of direct mail outs. So I think they were just putting so much work in on the ground, particularly with that community, which is, you know, a Galloway specialism. It's it's what he's done in previous elections, Bethnal Green and Bow, Bradford West. But something that really strikes me about sort of the late style of George Galloway is um, that he sort of fishes in a similar pool to that which Simon Danchuk, the Reform UK candidate, probably was attempting to uh, in this by-election, which is he uses quite a lot of anti-woke talking points. I think there were some letters that went out that said that he knew the definition of a woman and things like this. And I remember when I was in Batley following his campaigners around, they were going to quite a lot of um, whiter areas and uh, trying to drum up some culture war stuff um, for, to appeal to those voters. And so, you know, his, his team told me that, you know, some of the white community are disengaged too, as well as um, Muslim voters who feel overlooked by sort of mainstream Westminster parties, particularly over Gaza. So I think there's that aspect of the electorate that he he has um, tapped into as well. And he mentioned, you know, the grooming gangs, for example, to me when I interviewed him. And that's sort of quite a racially tense issue in the in the town. You know, it's part of its recent history. This is the story of chiefly men of Pakistani origin who had abused um, young working class white girls in the town. So it's it's a very uh, it's a very emotive issue. And that's something that he's not sort of scared to shy away from. So it shows that he's, you know, I think uh, trying to have it both ways in a way, if I can put it that crudely. But I mean, it, ju it just means that he's understood um, the dynamics in the town maybe more than people give him credit for. Yeah, there were those those two letters that were going around social media posted side by side, both from the George Galloway campaign, one of them talking about how he stands up for British Muslims and the issue of Gaza and the other one talking about the culture wars, knowing what a woman is, sort of anti-wokery. Um, so there was a sort of sense that he was kind of micro-targeting different yeah, voters. Yeah, I haven't seen that tweet, but I would say that it is actually a coherent strategy. So, you know, without wanting to stereotype or generalise, um, you know, there are members of the Muslim community who, are, who do have um, socially conservative views. And so some of those um, messages... You know, it's not necessarily contradictory. I understand people wanting to sort of score points on social media, but it, it, it did feel quite coherent in Batley and also here as well. What about um, the other things that he was promising? So when he when he spoke from the winners' podium this morning, the pledges that he was making to voters in Rochdale 
were kind of a, a real mix, grooming gangs, but also maternity services uh, and a new Primark. And I remember, Anish, from your feature, you were talking about how that sort of spoke to a sense that the town has been abandoned. Like it was not just about Gaza, right? No, although I think there's been quite a lot of commentary from, I think, wishful thinking commentators on this um, saying that, you know, all voters in Rochdale only care about their potholes. Gaza was definitely a a major first order issue for a lot of voters, a significant portion of voters in in Rochdale, I'd say. But yes, obviously, there there are concerns about the state of the high street, which is the area has been hollowed out. There's that post-industrial feel to the town. um, And Galloway did tap into that as well as other candidates did too. Um, but he was promising to bring a Primark to the town centre, which, you know, did get applause at the event that I watched. But also some people were quite cynical about how that could possibly make the town better. Restore the open air market. There's a lot of nostalgia for that, um, as there is in other places that have lost their their regular markets. Um, and uh, try and reinvigorate maternity and A&E services, which have kind of dwindled away locally. So he did. He did. Yeah, he did know some of the local issues. Other candidates, so the Lib Dem candidate who I spoke to, Simon Danchuk and and others, were trying to make the same arguments, you know, about crime rates and local transport links and the bread and butter issues. Um, but it seems the main candidate who who seemed to appeal to the electorate who really wanted bread and butter issues to be the main to the main um, sort of motivating factor for their vote was David Tully, who was a very little known uh, local candidate who'd never been involved in politics before and isn't political. He wasn't approaching it from a political perspective. He runs a vehicle repair centre in the town, a family business. I think it's on its third generation now. So he's well known locally. And actually, you know, none of us, you know, saw saw his success coming second place coming apart from um, George Galloway. Uh, so when I asked his campaign team, who are you most scared of? thinking they might mention Reform UK or maybe even the discredited Labour candidate. But they, they, the only name they gave me was David Tully. And I, I, at the time, you know, to my shame as a journalist, didn't really follow that up. But they clearly knew that there was some enthusiasm for him on the ground. This was obviously Labour's election to lose. When it was first called, it was sort of widely assumed that it would be a very safe Labour hold. Obviously, it's gone disastrously for them with their choice of candidate having to disown the candidate and and now ending up with a fourth fourth place and just seven percent of the vote. Um, ben, I know you are always wary of reading too much into by elections or, or, or taking a sort of sceptical take of what by elections mean more more generally. How worried do you think Labour should be about this? Um, this this is what happens when there's virtually not a Labour candidate on the ballot paper. This is this is what happens when you disavow a Labour candidate and voters go searching and and what voters searched found and you know low turnout I get yes by election different votes people want to send a message sure but they've chose a populist candidate in the in the, in the shape of George Galloway and of course a local independent to be honest it looked more like a by-election result from you know the Outer Hebrides as opposed to uh, you know urban England. That's it's quite it's quite out there. It's dramatic. It's different. It's not what you expect. And let's be honest here: whether the general election is in May or October or January next year, the winning candidate of this by-election will almost certainly not be winning 
the general election seat. Uh, well, the 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 seat for when the general election comes. I I, I think the long term impacts of this. Uh, well, you've got to bear in mind a fewfold. We know Labour's um, position amongst Muslim Britons is in a state of freefall. One Salvation poll had them at eighty something percent as of the last election. Now it's down to sixty something percent. You know, a collapse of twenty something points when Labour is up ten to fifteen points nationally is a something quite quite stark. But what that would translate to probably in general election is not necessarily defections to other parties. Everyone likes to think, ah, the Greens, because they're left of Labour, they'll get all the anti, you know, the, the left votes. That's not always the case, especially amongst uh, voting Muslims, not least, as Anoush says, a great portion of which are socially conservative, those who are settled voting about things other than their own survival. Um, so uh, what I would expect is a lot more apathy amongst voting Muslims, which is going to be potentially lower turnout, a slow, lower lower engagement. But where there are local outfits ready to strike in and you know cause a bit of a nuisance, um, I, you, you should you should expect Labour to to just shed some serious support. I think, for example, in the council elections to come in Birmingham or wherever there's a high Muslim population, keep an eye on them. Who are those voters going to? If it's simple Labour holds on a measly turnout, it's apathy. But if they're going to local independent groups, if they're maybe going to the Greens, if they're going to the Lib Dems, as they used to in 2003, then maybe something is happening there. What I think this by-election is, is quite clearly a, a potential pause, a breather, in what is a, you know, a breather to the general narrative. I don't think it changes that general narrative that Labour is on course for a, a landslide, and they, they still are. But what I think it does is it shows us how th bad things could be one day. You know, when, when Keir Starmer inevitably, well, if he does or when he does become prime minister, you know, he may be a technocratic guy, but populism will still exist. Populism will still stand. People will still want to lash out against the system and vote for a local guy or vote for someone who will look after their town or they'll still want to rally against foreign affairs. Uh, but the performance, by the way, the performance is completely abysmal. I think I was, I was surprised at that, really. I was, I was expecting Simon Danchuk, the former MP, to at least come away with something for him to get virtually nowhere. It was a shock. But um, what, the, what this result is, um, yes, it, it, it's, it's a breather. Uh, so it's sort of saying, you know, the minute, minute Starmer becomes PM is, is not the minute populism dies. It will always carry on. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, it's an insight into how bad things could get for Labour, you know, if and when they're in government, actually. I think the reform story is quite interesting as well, because like, like you said, that a lot of people were expecting reform to do slightly better than they did. Richard Tice has sort of made some wild claims about postal votes. I think George Galloway has claimed in an interview that Richard Tice tried to recruit him for reform in a previous by-election and Tice has denied that. So I think there's a, there's a lot of back and forth going on with how reform sort of play this. But on sort of what Galloway does next, obviously he's got a seat in parliament now. He's going to be making the most of that platform talking about Gaza in particular a lot. But Anish, you've followed him on by-elections before. He knows he's going to have to fight for the seat again in the next couple of months, six months, nine months. What what do you think his game plan is? What should we be sort of watching for? What's the Galloway playbook from this point? Yeah, I did ask him this and he said that, um, I mean, he was convinced when I interviewed him last week that they were going to win this. Um, and then he said, once we've done that, we're going to turn our attention to the May local elections in Rochdale and sort of um, suggested that they'd clean up in those. Um, and then he said, you know, 
I think he, his phrase was something like, this will catch, This I think he meant this will like catch fire um, and he'll try and replicate it across the country. That's really difficult because Galloway himself is a charismatic sort of orator. People know him and he's got a very commanding presence. You can't replicate that um, with candidates across the country. But like Ben said, you know, I do think that this shows that there is room for this sort of left-wing revolt against Labour from the perspective of um, justice for Palestinians, but also with a populist flavour in parts of the country where you do have both a a big sort of working-class Muslim population, as you see in Rochdale, but also the sort of urban liberal middle-class voters who might come from a diverse range of backgrounds who also feel very passionately about Palestine, um, who are feeling disillusioned with Keir Starmer's um, position on it. So it might not necessarily have an impact on a general election result, but it will certainly pull resources um, from seats where Labour would you know, ideally not have resources pulled from in order to stop Labour voters being apathetic in areas that they otherwise were taking for granted. That's something that a Labour MP who knows these issues very well warned me about. You know, they were suggesting, actually, it means that we're going to be a bit, bit more stretched trying to get the Labour vote out in certain areas which we were otherwise thinking we were quite comfortable in. So I think that's one aspect of it. And then also just looking at the future, there's a few jitters within Sadiq Khan's team about London, for example. Um, Who knows what will happen in in those elections, but in the future, you could see a London that feels as taken for granted as Scotland did or the so-called Red Wall did. Um, And that is something that I have heard local Labour London politicians warn about. Will voters go elsewhere? I mean, I live in Tower Hamlets. Our council is run by Aspire, which is Look for Rahman's party, which very much um, echoes the style of politics of, of Galloway. So I do think the Gaza issue has ignited some, somewhat of a revolt on the left, which won't necessarily change the general election result, but is a headache for, for Labour. After the break, we'll discuss what Labour need to learn about their vetting process. If you're subscribed to the New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And obviously, the main driver of this result was Labour and its candidate selection and having to disown the candidate at a stage that was too late to change it and and get somebody else in. Both of you, what do you think that Labour has to learn about selection and vetting? And we should say that this is obviously an issue that all parties have um, and the Conservatives have had with with their candidates before and, and they're reported to have increased background checks and and vetting. But the comments that the Labour candidate made weren't on social media. They were in a a private meeting 
that hadn't been made public before. So is there is there anything Labour could have done or what could they do for next time? Um, what can Labour learn? Um, vet better. Vet absolutely better. This is the, this is the thing. Um, you know, every time you become a candidate, the, the standard question is, are there any skeletons in your closet? And too many people think they can get away with not mentioning uh, whatever. But the, but the truth of the matter is it always comes out. It always comes out. Let, let, let's remind ourselves, cast ourselves back to 2013 through to 15 when, you know, you had about 100 UKIP councillors elected. And then every week there was UKIP councillor found in far right Facebook group or UKIP councillor said this in 2008 or whatever. You know, people will find things. People will. And so you've got to either be squeaky clean or come out and say it, say it straight, as, as I think some candidates need to do. I think the fact um, where Mr. Ali's comments were made was an overwhelmingly Labour meeting with with community residents um, does suggest who uh, brought it out, who leaked it, who sent it out, was very much either embedded in the community or even involved in the Labour machine. We don't really know. We can't say anything with confidence. But um, from what I'm hearing, I know some people in the Labour Party who actually uh, were warning of this type of stuff beforehand, but um, they, they were perhaps too small staffers to make it aware, or indeed they might have just been playing, you know, the political game of trying to trying to uh, cause this anyway i i I don't what can labor necessarily learn from it yes select better get and i would i was i'd always say this get someone of the community from the community don't try and parachute in anybody the era of parachuting candidates in the famous case uh tristan hunt who who was parachuted into stoke-on-trent held his seat but if you go to stoke his name still gets mentioned his name is still mentioned as the guy oh it's labor party from down south it's the Labour Party that's not local here. And it really did feed in, in Stoke at least, into a sense of um, let's not vote Labour, let's vote for independent candidates, let's vote for UKIP, and then a few years down the line, let's give the Tories a chance. You've got to always make sure your candidate is of that community, especially when the community is, let's be honest, a bit poor or feels a bit vulnerable, a bit left down and wants to either lash out or have a sort of local champion. Galloway's success is, is the fact he can sort of go anywhere and try to act, pretend he's of it. I'll always remember the Bradford West by-election when he was putting out leaflets, you know, this Catholic-born fellow saying he was a very good Muslim. He was never drank. He's never committed adultery. He's never committed sin, which, uh, come on, I think anyone who's read Wooster Galloway's Wikipedia page can say otherwise to that. One of the issues with this candidate is I think he was seen as being on the sort of moderate wing of the Labour Party, not seen as a Corbynite. Um, someone who had advised Tony Blair on extremism. He was close to Louise Elman, who was a, a Labour Jewish MP who got a lot of anti-Semitic abuse. Um, and so I think there was an assumption that he would be a safe candidate in a seat like this. I mean, he was leader of the Labour opposition on Lancashire Council, so he's sort of a big local figure if, if sort of Lancashire counts as local to Rochdalians, which, you know, as Ben was saying, I do think that the more local, the better. And... I think that blinded them to some of the comments that he made when they first came out. I think they thought that's out of character. He's apologised. Let's stick with him. I spoke to someone who had known him really well for three decades and had worked with him closely. And they said to me that those comments came as no surprise to me. And actually, a lot of people in local Labour parties um, do hold views like that. So I do think there is a, there is a wider problem here, which is that... Um, some of the things that he was saying, which you know, echo anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, are quite widely said and quite mainstream. So I think that that's not necessarily a, just a Labour issue. I think that's sort of a societal issue about views about Israel and 
um, what's going on in the Middle East. So I think I think that was an issue as well. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know much about the vetting process that he was put under, but the way that they responded to it was a little bit shambolic, I think. And probably uh, what fed into it was this idea that he wasn't from the faction, which they usually sort of summarily suspend someone if they say anything relating to Israel or, or Judaism. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, you can leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Cunliffe, and my colleagues, Anusha Kellyan and Ben Walker. We'll be back on Monday with the MP Barry Gardner to discuss whether leaseholds are a big feudal con. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.